Welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. This is going to be a different kind of episode than you're used to because, frankly, these are different times than we're all used to. It's fair to say that the coronavirus has had a large short-term impact on the agriculture industry. Farm shows and industry conferences for March, April, May, and even into the summer have been canceled, and workers for many ag companies have been ordered to work from home. It remains to be seen what the broader impact will be on the industry. Farmers will still head into the fields this spring to plant crops, and as a matter of fact, many have already begun. Also, livestock producers will continue to tend to business with as much normalcy as possible. On Fastline Fast Track, we'll continue to monitor the situation and bring you content that will help you understand the situation and make informed decisions going forward. We know that we have to be careful what we put out there because this is an ever-changing situation. We don't want to put dated or inaccurate information out there to cause confusion. We'll also continue to include music in the episodes because, hey, everyone needs a mental break from thinking about this stuff, and there's no greater escape than good music. Well, first up this week, we'll hear from American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duvall and Chief Economist Dr. John Newton. On Wednesday, March 18th, Duvall sent a letter to U.S. Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue to outline the coronavirus concerns of Farm Bureau members nationwide. Among the group's chief concerns is a labor shortage on farms as the State Department has suspended the processing of all new, non-emergency visa applications from Mexico. Duvall said U.S. farms and ranches could face a serious labor shortage at a critical time for planting and harvesting crops essential to the domestic food supply as the U.S. agriculture industry relies on more than a quarter million H-2A workers every year. Farm Bureau would like to see the administration find a safe way to vet the workers and continue to grant visas so they can work on farms and ranches nationwide. The organization joined the Agriculture Workforce Coalition in sending a letter to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to address the concerns as well. Let's hear from President Duvall now. Ladies and gentlemen, this is one problem we got to fix or four to six months down the road, everyone will feel the, the, the uh, effects of what could happen if we don't get the workers here to get it done. And it also raises the uh, importance of having a program that farmers can work through to bring workers here to do this work because uh, Americans just don't want to do this type work anymore. Duvall and Newton also addressed concerns that the coronavirus might have an impact on the implementation of the phase one trade deal with China. Of course, I'll uh, yield to John here in a minute, our economist, but, uh, you know, from a farmer's point of view, we know that we knew that uh, the China deal was going to take a little while to get cranked up uh, and fully implemented. Uh, and we do, and but we also didn't ex- expect to have the virus at the level that it is, and when it has excelled and become a uh, pandemic, that we understand that it is going to get in the way of this uh, this trade deal. And but how how much it will, and how much it will affect it, I don't know. But I'll yield to John to see the economist to see if he has any concrete numbers. Uh, thank you, President Duvall. Uh, I think what we know right now with respect to the the Phase One agreement with China. And, and what we've seen uh, on behalf of the Chinese is, is they've taken uh, meaningful steps to address some of the non-tariff barriers to trade uh, that we had. For example, uh, plant approval. Uh, we now understand that almost 500 beef plants have been approved for export to China. Uh, they're, they're reviewing the use of ractopamine in the pork supply chain and, and moving to approve that as well. So they're streamlining and enhancing uh, many of the approval processes needed uh, to get more U.S. agricultural products to the country, and I think that's a step in the right direction. Another concern is with the supply chain. 
There is a concern that prolonged social distancing could have a significant impact on meatpacking plants, dairy processors, ethanol plants, and other processing facilities that play a vital role in delivering the food and fuel Americans rely on. There's also a concern that as many farmers prepare for planting season, there could be disruptions in access to seed, fertilizer, and crop protection tools. Duvall also spoke about the federal hours of service rule for the trucking industry, which were adjusted by the federal government this week, but that adjustment left out livestock haulers. Transportation is going both ways. Uh, transportation bringing inputs into the farm that farmers use would be fertilizers, feed stuff for animals, uh, uh, cleaning materials for dairies, whatever it might be, that transportation is crucial coming into the farm so that have the proper input. And also away from the farm, hauling milk or whether it be hauling fruits and vegetables or live animals to the slaughterhouses to, to have them prepared for the marketplace. That is absolutely essential. And, they, and they, in the transportation area, they've uh, uh, offered some, uh, some waivers uh, for hours of service to help uh, move uh, products around in the supply chain, uh, but it didn't include uh, some of agriculture's live animals and things. So we're, we're asking them to expand that a little bit to talk a little bit more about on the farm end of the, the uh, uh, exemption. And then, of course, in the packing plants, we're hoping that there's good plans in place there, and I feel sure that those companies have good plans in place to be able to handle the situation uh, uh, if, it, if it arises in those areas, because that could very much disrupt the chain, the supply chain of food if we start having problems, a breakdown in the system and manufacturing. Uh, we know of none that's happened yet. There are also worries about maintaining stable and fair markets. Duvall said there are growing concerns from livestock producers regarding market manipulation. Also, fresh produce growers have voiced concerns over the possible dumping of products from other countries. Yeah, we've had one state up in the northeastern part of the country uh, that, that said they had seen some evidence of some uh, dumping from other countries. Uh, I think there was uh, uh, vegetables. And, uh, and I asked them to give us some, a little more definite uh, 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 data about that situation, and I haven't received that yet. Yeah, market manipulation. Mm -hmm. so if you, I tell you what, I'm going to refer to John Newton a little bit. He can talk about the prices and where they went uh, since this virus hit America. Uh, but we're keeping a close eye on it to make sure that we don't have uh, any market manipulation and, and uh, make sure that uh, – uh, the people of America gets treated right in our farmers too. So, John, if you want to pick it up, talk about the numbers. Yes, sir. Thank you, President Duvall. I think the what we what we've seen is, is since uh, January 14th, when this virus was confirmed, many of the major uh, agricultural commodities have seen their prices fall. Uh, in some cases, pretty sharply. Uh, live cattle uh, have have fallen uh, by 28 percent since January 14th. Uh, Class 4 milk, which is milk used to produce uh, powders predominantly for export, markets have fallen by 26%. Hogs were down 20%. So uh, a lot of the different sectors of agriculture have seen uh, their prices fall uh, uh, pretty sharply. Uh, we've been in contact with the CFTC to make sure that they're monitoring uh, spot market transactions, 
Um, and and I think that's you know that's we're doing the best of our ability to to monitor these pricing situations as they emerge. Duval also talked about stress on the farm and some of the mental health resources provided by the American Farm Bureau Federation. You know, if you look at the markets for the last eight years, we've been seeing our prices go down. We're below. We're at 50, about fifty percent of the farm income that we had back uh, eight eight years ago. Uh, that's a stress. And then of course. Uh, uh, we we have experienced unbelievable uh, weather, uh, extreme weather all over the country, from volcanoes to earthquakes to, to um, too much rain to, to thunder uh, to uh, uh, hurricanes. So our, our guys were stressed out over that, and then we we had to experience a trade war uh, that this administration very much uh, uh, recognized and helped our farmers with the. Uh, trade mitigation packages that they deliver to the farm. Uh, but, you know, and our farmers are out there each and every day. I spend a lot of time alone. I mean, it's a, I farmed all my life and dairy for 30 years. You spend a lot of time by yourself with your own thoughts. And it's a, it's a very difficult time and, and difficult after you go through these strains. And now we, now we have the virus to deal with and all the issues that come along with the virus. So the stress out there is, at a really high level for our farmers. Uh, I think they're handling it real well, but some people haven't handled it well. And so in seeing that and recognizing it, a grassroots had an outcry of us creating a program that could help in that area, whether it be uh, through education and through awareness and trying to get rid of the stigma of having um, uh, farmers uh, being able to talk to each, talk to, talk to someone that might can help them. Uh, so we started a rural resilience uh, initiative. It's American Farm Bureau, uh, also a Farm Town Strong webpage that, where people could go to to find some assistance if, if uh, opioids is part of their problem. Uh, and then uh, just recently, uh, Bayer, uh, the company Bayer, had a uh, farm. A state of mind program that dealt with mental health on in rural communities and they were very gracious to give their program to us which will run parallel with our program and give us a wider reach so we in our programs it gives the opportunity for grassroots and our organization to uh, come and uh, educate themselves on some of the issues that might be around mental health it might give it gives them the opportunity to learn where the resources are. So if they have an opportunity to recommend some of those resources to a loved one or a friend or a neighbor, uh, and we're trying to do some educating of uh, of just about awareness about mental health on the farm. Farmers are tough guys and women, and and it's just not in their nature to talk about their problems. Uh, and we got to make sure that they understand it's okay to talk about it. The only way. The only way to get rid of that, to relieve some of that stress is to talk to someone, whether it be a loved one, a professional, or a religious pastor, or or just anyone. It may be somebody you don't even know uh, that you might open up to. So we are very much aware of that, and it's been very supportive through our board of directors to be able to reach out and try to help our people in the rural communities. Duvall also added this message to offer encouragement to farmers, ranchers, and the American public. I guess perhaps the most important uh, message that I can leave with you today is we're real proud to see the agriculture and our country is pulling together in these uncertain times. And um, 
Uh, I've been on the phone with Secretary Purdue conveying the concern, our concerns and all the concerns that we're hearing uh, from our State Farm Bureau. We've been in communication with the White House. We've been in communication with Congress and all levels of government that may have to do with issues that either are facing or possibly could face agriculture in the days to come. Uh, we want to make sure that the consumer is assured that there's plenty of food out there. Right now, it's just because their buying habits have changed. It's the reason we're seeing the vacancies on the shelf. And we really appreciate so much the people that are working so hard to stock those shelves, the men and women that are driving the vehicles to transport them to the store, and the men and women in our healthcare system and the first responders that are taking care of our families and our communities across America. And our hearts go out to all of them because we know they're working overtime in all those areas. And we very much appreciate them taking care of our health and, and making sure that the, the food that has been produced is being made available to our people as efficiently as they can under the situation. As the response to this COVID-19 pandemic plays out, we'll try to get President Duvall back on the show to address this fluid situation. Now we want to stick with the American Farm Bureau Federation and bring in R.J. Carney, the Director of Congressional Relations with the organization, to talk about the need to accelerate the build-out of broadband internet service in rural America in light of the coronavirus pandemic. R.J., welcome in. Well, thank you for having me today. So uh, what, one of the big missions that uh, the American Farm Bureau Federation has had for quite some time has been uh, uh, lobbying Congress to uh, accelerate the funding for rural broadband in communities across America. It's fair to say that uh, the, the USDA has taken uh, the lead in, in ramping this up. They, they have uh, allocated uh, $600 million, and we've seen a lot of disbursements uh, over the last six to nine months. But uh, unfortunately, like a lot of things in life, you, you don't see just how uh, the situation really affects people until you're in the middle of a crisis. And RJ, this COVID-19 uh, pandemic has really brought to the fore uh, the, the real tangible need for broadband in rural America. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, Farm Bureau has been beating the drum, uh, really elevating that the singular message that broadband is, is no longer a luxury. It is a necessity. And I think we're seeing that uh, point just exasperated uh, right now in, in, in the current environment. Uh, there's, there's great need. Uh, a lot of schools are shutting down right now, for example. And I've, the last number I saw, uh, there was close to about 72,000 schools are shut down around nationwide, around there a little bit more than 36 million students have been impacted by that. And uh, when students go home, they're, they're, the need was, well, we're going to be able to continue education uh, with remote learning. And that's, that is a great uh, solution for folks who do have the Internet. And the unfortunate side of that coin, though, is there's more than 19 million Americans who, who don't have Internet access in, in rural areas. And uh, that, that significant number is, is going to impact those students who don't have the connection uh, to continue their their schooling um, once those doors shut, and uh, they're going to have to try to find other ways and other avenues to continue their education uh, during this 
uh, during this pandemic crisis. Mm-hmm. And I know you've heard, and I know I've heard stories of, of folks who have had to uh, leave the farm and drive into town and, and park in a, a McDonald's parking lot or, or whatever to uh, get the kids uh, broadband access just to be able to uh, uh, finish a school project that, that, that they were required to do online. And, uh, uh, you know, people thought that that was extreme. But now if you talk about this e-learning, and we've seen a lot of that ramp up even this week, I mean, you're talking about having to do a significant portion of schoolwork online and, and, and to sit in a McDonald's or in the McDonald's parking lot for hours on end while your, your kid finishes up homework is just not realistic. It's not realistic, and we're also beginning to see certain states uh, shut down uh, many restaurants as well. Uh, so it's there, there was great momentum, and, and give great credit to uh, to Congress, uh, both both sides of the aisle, to the administration, uh, for these past few years, really focusing a lot of attention on the need to uh, to build out rural broadband, expand broadband to, as I said, this 19 million um, Americans who do not have access to it. But we're seeing this in a in real time, um, and it it extends beyond just uh, distance learning. Uh, we're also seeing with regards to telemedicine and healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, pri- there's, a, there's been a drastic decline in primary care physicians throughout rural America. Specialists are almost non-existent. And in this time, we're trying to practice uh, social distancing, and um, there's, there's great opportunity for telemedicine and the need for telemedicine for connecting rural communities, rural health clinics, to specialists in maybe the more urbanized area for uh, testing for COVID-19, for other medical needs and emergencies that may arise. And if rural communities don't have that access, don't have that broadband connection, there's great liabilities. Uh, They're impacting their health. And uh, this is something that we're seeing play out in real time here. So uh, yes, there's been a great attention drawn to this issue, great momentum but this is the this is the reason that broadband is no longer a luxury. It is a necessity uh, for all Americans to have access to this. Uh, high-speed internet broadband connection. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that uh, uh, you had talked about, Congress, uh, the, the cooperation there, one of the things that has really kind of stifled uh, some of the efforts to, to bring broadband to communities is how uh, the whole system is mapped. Uh, whereas when, when providers look at uh, what areas are being served, if they're seeing ones and twos here, they're, they're counting that whole area is being served when in actuality it's not. Uh, some recent uh, legislation that was passed by the House and Senate looks like it is going to uh, uh, throw some funds the way of uh, being able to to better map that and, and maybe rectify some of those situations. It is. It's a it's a great victory for, for rural America. Uh, one disadvantage that has uh, continually played out was the inaccuracy of broadband access maps, and with the way the Federal Communications Commission was. Previously, in uh, gathering this data, was internet service providers would fill out a form and say where their territory was and and what entities they were providing service to. So it could be one hospital in one area. Well, the area itself was based off of census blocks, and census blocks are disproportionately larger in rural America than they are in your more suburban and urban areas. There's 3,200 census blocks 
that are larger than the District of Columbia. There are four census blocks in rural America that are larger than the entire state of Connecticut. And if just one entity, so if one hospital, one school, one household, one business had service, then according to the Federal Communications Commission, that entire census block was now 100% covered and no federal dollars were going to go in and help for a broadband build-out. And Congress recognized and, and heard from organizations like the American Farm Bureau Federation and many other uh, rural organizations that this was doing a disservice. There was no baseline to know what areas truly had um, broadband connections, which ones were served, underserved, or unserved areas. And they had to get more granular, transparent, and really accountable maps. And Congress led this effort. Uh, and, and recently, the House and Senate both passed uh, the Broadband Data Act, and it's on its way to the president for, for his signature. Uh, I don't believe uh, that he signed it yet under the current uh, emergency that we're, we're, we're under. Uh, but once he does sign that and uh, that act comes into law, we're going to see a lot more transparent and granular mapping system, uh, one that also will allow end users. So all your listeners here, they will be able to challenge any of the federal communications maps on broadband service. And there will be a, a method, an easier method for them to be able to, to do this than there's currently no method in place for these challenges to take place. So this was a great victory, uh, a great way to really finally have a baseline on where broadband access is and where it is not. So these federal funds can be more accurately targeted and directed towards areas that are most in need. Well, if you're hearing this and you're in one of those areas that, that is underserved or not served at all, or you know somebody who is, uh, what, what is the best way for folks to uh, be, be able to make sure that their voice is heard on this? Well, a great way right now is to uh, really connect and contact your members of Congress and thank them for passing the Broadband Data Act. Um, but if you're looking at areas where you do not have service, we're, right now we're going to be waiting for once, a, once this bill is signed into law, the Federal Communication Commission will have to go through a, a rulemaking process uh, to establish ways for this challenge to take place. So at this point, it would be a great opportunity to contact your internet service providers first to let them know that you do not have service and the map is showing that you currently do. Additionally, begin contacting the Federal Communications Commission. The commissioners, there's five commissioners. Contact them and let them know that you do not have service. Uh, you can do this on the FCC's website, fcc.gov. And this would be a great opportunity just to let your voice be heard to your members of Congress at the administrative level with the Federal Communication Commissioners that you're watching, you're ready, and you're prepared to participate so we can actually get broadband deployment out to all of rural America. Well, this is a critical issue, and we're going to keep uh, it at the forefront here and, uh, and keep in touch with, with the folks from the American Farm Bureau Federation to uh, make sure that, that we are sharing the latest developments and updates so uh, that you guys can make informed decisions. And, RJ, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us here on Fast Line, Fast Track. I hope you have a great rest of the day. Next up, I wanted to share with you a couple comments from U.S. Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue, who spoke Wednesday about the safety and efficiency of the food supply chain, which has been a big concern for many Americans. We were on uh, a conference call yesterday with all of our food suppliers and vendors and those that help grow, process, and deliver 
food to our customers, and it's alive and well. Purdue said USDA food inspectors remain on the job, and suppliers and retailers are working tirelessly to make sure food returns to store shelves as quickly as possible, despite the run on many grocery stores across the country. These are the real heroes out here in the public and private sector who are getting their jobs done in spite of the potential of coronavirus and the people who are stocking our grocery shelves, delivering the food. They're the real heroes. The Ag Secretary assured consumers that despite the many empty store shelves, there is no food shortage in America. If you see empty shelves, that's a demand issue, not a supply issue. We'll have more from Sunny Purdue next week. For now, we want to turn to some of the notable farm show cancellations that have happened in light of the coronavirus. We learned late last week that the Wisconsin Public Service Show in Oshkosh, where we were planning to be at the end of the month, has been canceled, as had the Three Eye Show in Dodge City, Kansas, one of the oldest operating farm shows west of the Mississippi. We took Fast Line Fast Track to the show last year, and now I want to bring in Eddie Estes, the organizer of that show, to talk about the decision to close, which was made before states were mandating the cancellation of large gatherings. Eddie, welcome to Fast Line Fast Track. Well, first of all, I appreciate all you do and Fast Line and all the excellent efforts made by your company. And we sure did enjoy you being here with us last year when it almost kicked off this program, if I remember right. Would yeah. that be correct? Yeah, we were in the early stages. In the, it, one of the first few episodes, we, we had the pleasure of being out there in, in Dodge City for, for that show and uh, uh, w- was looking forward to seeing another great show this year. And unfortunately, uh, uh, you just had to err on the side of caution with this one. Well, we, we uh, one day we were going ahead we, we thought we were okay and then i started getting some information that was very concerning and the next day actually just a few hours later that's when we made the decision to not do the show and it all you know this show is 66 years old mm-hmm. we have never ever ever had anything well nobody has had anything like this but we've never canceled the show before and it was extremely difficult particularly when this year we had so many different events at the show that we'd never done before so we were really excited about the show and looking forward to it but you know you have to do the right thing and you know that's the very group that if they were at the show some of those are in that group of people that can be affected drastically I couldn't be real phony about it, my friend, so I thought we've got to do something that's the best thing to do in light of what's happening. My golly, since this happened, since last Friday when we, you know, made that statement, uh, we now we know we couldn't have had it anyway. Even there in Ford uh, County, uh, where you guys are, you, you've now had a, a confirmed case of, of coronavirus. We did. The, the word is that someone flew in here from Oregon to meet with their uh, relative, and yes, they, that's what happened. So, T- tell us a bit about what the show was going to look like this year, and, and what you had on the slate as far as new events. The two events that we have never done before. Uh, that we thought would be, and we, we had a request for one of them. One was a gun show, believe it or not. And we had a tremendous number of those folks very interested in doing that. And they were all, of course, federally approved people, exhibitors, federal licensed people that were going to be a part of that. But the other thing we were going to do was sell Angus bulls on the last day of the show after they were on display all three days of the show. 
and that's something we'd never done at this show before. Worked it out from a wonderful bunch of folks out in Lamar, Colorado, a bunch of two-year-olds, a variety of Angus cattle, and we were really excited about that because, boy, we started getting calls about that right the minute that we announced it. And, uh, I mean, it was just going to be a pretty spectacular event, and that was probably the one that just, well, anytime you have to cancel something like this, it just breaks your heart anyway. But you've got to do it, and like we said, in the best interest of what's going on right now. So what kind of feedback did you receive uh, from the public, from vendors and so forth, in light of the cancellation? Very supportive uh, because we did it when we did. We, we got in front of them all moving equipment in here. We got in front of all the you know expenses that they would have incurred from the exhibitors. Now, I'm, I'm not going to be sugarcoating any of this. We had some folks really upset and couldn't understand why we would even think of such a thing. But the information that I was getting at the time, they weren't. And I was just trying to do the right thing for everybody. So it, it's a mix, but it's more on the side of caution and a good idea to do it than it was on, oh, why'd you do that? So that's kind of where we're at at this moment. Well, hopefully anybody who questioned that decision now has had a few days to let it sink in and has seen how the uh, uh, situation has played out and may, may feel a bit differently about that now. I think they would. And, and I think people are just so in, in such a state of shock over this whole thing. I mean, it's just unbelievable in so many ways because how do we compare it to anything when we've never had anything to compare it to like this? Uh, so that's kind of where we were at on the whole process. And we just wanted to do this in regard to the right thing to do. And that's that's the reason that we ended up with that decision. It's almost, you know, that, that, that Thursday before, matter of fact, there's a headline in the Globe that we we're going through all these precautions to do it right and all these things. And the next day, just a few hours later, we had to pull the plug. We just had to do it. It was we were getting that information that something was going to come down the pike on uh, Saturday or Sunday, and you know that's two more days of planning and things and expense for people. So that's why we did that on the Friday that we did. Well, I tell you what, the uh, you've got the dates pinned down now for 2021, March 18th through the 20th. Um, yes, sir. What can you tell us about that and the preparations that will begin now for next year? Absolutely, they are. And matter of fact, we've already uh, uh, visited with the folks, the uh, cattle company that's going to do the, that auction. Uh, last last time uh, that we didn't have it, of course. Uh, this year, we had even a state cook-off plan that would tie to some of those, those special events that we had, and we we're hoping to bring that back uh, next time. We had 20 of, a, of a, what we call the nation's best uh, folks involved with the steak industry that were going to be here, and they were all set up to go. We called it a state cook-off, and that is an association, by the way. And then we had one thing kind of fun that we were going to do, and we've never done a horseshoe uh, competition, and there's an association for that also. Hmm. So uh, we thought that might be kind of a fun thing to do, so we set them up. They're great people, by the way, and they were really disappointed that we 
you know, that we had to cancel. And the other thing that we always do, and you know about this because you witnessed it last time you were here, but uh, that's our what we call high school ag career day. And that's where we bring 150 to 160 young people in, and they're able to go around and visit with manufacturers about careers in agriculture. And so we're looking forward to bringing that back uh, next year because it's critically important that we do that. You know, there's a lot of manufacturers that just can't find help, and that's what that's all about. So folks want to uh, monitor the situation and uh, be in the know for next year's show, uh, what's that web address that they can go to to keep tabs? All you have to do, we've got Facebook at 3i Show, Facebook, and also it's www.3ishow.com. And then we're uh, we're tweeting also, so we're trying to let everybody know what we're doing and where we're at, and and that's kind of that's that's the plan for the next next go round. We we can't hardly reschedule it because we don't know how long this thing will drag on. Yeah, it, it's one thing to say okay, but I, I'm even getting stuff from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway right now that's indicating it's maybe that's up in the air, and that's been a Memorial Weekend for over a hundred years. Yeah, and so things like that are out there that you know. How do you predict when we just don't know what's next? Well, that's for sure. And all we can do is is, is hope and pray for the best here, and uh, and try to carry on best we can here. But Eddie, we certainly do appreciate you taking the time to join us here on Fast Line Fast Track, and uh, uh, wish you the best of luck as you start uh, shoring up plans for 2021. Well, we appreciate that very much, and we're what we're doing, we're working very closely with our exhibitors, the ones that were all involved in this time, and giving them a couple options on what to do, and we're trying to help them out and make sure that those that were in the show will have the priority on getting in the next show, and of course, uh, well, you know, everybody's kind of up in the air. Nobody knows what's going to happen for sure, but we're going to do everything we can to help everybody out. That's the key. Well, we appreciate it. And, uh, we, we've been talking with Eddie Estes, who's the organizer of the Three Eye Farm Show, uh, one of the great farm shows west of the mighty Mississippi. And finally this week, we head to Hank Snow's iconic Rainbow Ranch in Madison, Tennessee, for the music of Canadian singer-songwriter Kelsey Kulik, who's taken Nashville by storm. She currently has a song, Roll With It, featured on the CMT 12-pack, and was recently named to Raised Rowdy's Artist to Watch in 2020. A special thanks to the Ernest Tubb Record Shop, 417 Broadway in the heart of downtown Nashville, Tennessee, for making this segment possible. Back on Fast Line, Fast Track from the legendary Hank Snow Rainbow Ranch in Madison, Tennessee. Now it's a real pleasure to welcome in Kelsey Kulik. Uh, She's an up-and-coming artist out of Canada, Hudson Bay, Saskatchewan, Canada. Kelsey, welcome in to Fast Line, Fast Track. Thank you so much for having me, Brent. So I feel like uh, I've known you forever here because I got a chance to go back and look at some of the... uh, a uh, uh, little web shorts that you were doing here uh, a few months ago where you kind of pulled back the curtain a bit on your career and your life. And uh, uh, what, what was it like to be able to, uh, to, to, to bring that story to, to folks through that medium? It was, uh, it was pretty cool because are you talking about the ones where I was driving in my car and talking about like, yeah, starting singing when I was three years old. Um, it was funny because we actually, when we first started filming for that, we were sitting in a studio and, uh, it, they just had the lights on me and they were asking me questions and it just felt so, uh, staged Mm -hmm. that it was kind of like I was answering questions in a weird way and it just didn't seem natural and comfortable. And so 
we were shooting another sort of segment for something else and they had the video rolling and they were just asking me stuff about my past growing up and how I got into music and it just kind of fell out naturally because I didn't know that they were filming me so uh when they actually sent me because I figured that it was going to be the studio version that they were going to send me that we were going to post and share on social media (laughs) and it was me driving in the vehicle and I was like oh man that's so cool because I didn't think it was going to be that way but it was nice because it was a lot more emotional and real and and honest. So it was pretty cool to see the way that it came together. Well, and that's one of the things that really, uh, really struck me is that you really do kind of bear your soul on that, whereas a lot of people try to compartmentalize and, and stay away from some of that stuff. Yeah, well, and I think that's kind of what I was doing. I was kind of tiptoeing around it in the actual interview, but in the car, it was so natural that it just kind of all fell out and it, it came out perfectly. So, um, you know, some of those things, they're hard to tell people because you don't want people to you know feel bad for you or anything like that but um people you know sent me a ton of messages a bunch of people sent me a ton of messages saying how my story really connected with them so it was a definitely a good thing that they did and sneakily videoing me in the car (laughs) (laughs) so one of those things uh you 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 dealt with divorce growing up and uh and then you also uh, dealt with a bout of hodgkin's lymphoma as Mm -hmm. well yeah uh, that, that became part of your, your story. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I started singing when I was three years old. And um, if you ask my mom, she says I wrote my first song when I was five years old, which I don't know if I quite call that a song. But, you know, she's proud and she's going to say that about me. Um, but I was singing when I was three. And when I was seven, my parents got divorced. And I realized that music heals people because my dad listened to the song Nobody Knows It But Me. And I remember thinking, my dad's not telling me what he's saying, but I know what he's feeling. Mm. And that's all he needs to say, really. And he wasn't playing it for me. He was just playing it for himself because he needed some sort of emotional release. Mm. And then when I was diagnosed with cancer at 17, um, I would write out all the feelings that I had on paper and play them, you know, on guitar and sing a melody to them. And I would play them out for people and people would come up to me and be like, you know, I've gone through that and that's what I've always felt but didn't know how to say it. Mm -hmm. And that's when I had my aha moment and realized that that's what I want to do with music. So one of the things that, uh, that that I found entertaining was you you told about coming to Nashville for the first time when you were around that same age, about seven years old. And uh, actually getting to get up on stage and perform a little bit. Yeah, you know, my grandpa and my mom brought me to Nashville um, when I was seven. And I mean, it was an incredible experience because I got to perform on the General Jackson showboat, which was so cool. Um, It was like my first experience ever seeing makeup mirrors with lights on them. Uh And I remember thinking to myself, I'm famous. I made it. (laughs) And... uh, and I got to perform at Tootsie's and, and a bunch of small bars. And I'll never forget that experience as long as I live. I still go to Nashville Palace because I got up there and, and sang with the band. That still plays on the stage today. Uh. So it's it's so cool to come back to Nashville and see that, you know, obviously it's changed a lot since I was here when I was seven, but there are still some things that stayed the same. Yeah, and big shout out to the folks at uh, Nashville Palace where they're still doing country music the way country music should be done. 100%. We actually went there. My family came down to visit me, and we went there last year, and we closed the bar down to step into old-time country songs, and that's what I grew up on, so it was just made my heart so happy. So big shout out to those guys because they definitely uh, threw me back down memory, memory lane. Uh, when you talk about going back a bit, who were some of your influences? 
Well, my grandpa, I mean, I grew up in Hudson Bay, Saskatchewan. There's only one radio station and it only played country music. And then I had my grandpa as an influence who only played country music. He always used to tell me that country music is here to stay. Uh So I kind of took that to heart. And that's why I sing. That's one of the reasons I sing country music. But he was a big influence. But he always used to play me Dolly Parton, Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash, Loretta Lynn. So I grew up with a lot of that old time country music. But My mom, you know, she, you know, played Shania Twain and Faith Hill and Martina McBride and and all of those amazing 90s country singers as well. So I think I take a lot of influence from the old school country and 90s country. And actually, I worked with um, the producer of Fleetwood Mac when I was uh, in my late teens. And I think I take some of that as inspiration as well. And I went back and and looked at some of the comments that he had after working with you. And, uh, you know, he, he said that uh, it was one of the most authentic uh, and soulful voices, I believe, uh, since uh, working with Stevie Nicks. I mean, that's immense praise. Yeah, I Venmoed him after he said that. <laughs> no, as, as you should have. It was, it was honestly, um, no, it was, I mean, he is such a legend and we worked so closely that we're basically like family, him and his wife, like his, his daughter and I, we went, go on trips together and um, it's, you know, to have somebody that like, I respect him so much. He's done so much in his life. And for him to say that, it definitely made me super emotional because it was just, I mean, one of the highest compliments I've ever received. Uh-huh. So at what point did you say, okay, I've got something here. I can make a career out of this. Well, it was after cancer, I think, because when I was diagnosed with cancer, I realized then that what is life unless I'm doing what I love every single day. Hmm. And um, after I, you know, went through chemo and, you know, got the got in the clear, uh, that's when I went and moved down to Las Vegas and worked with Richard, who produced Fleetwood Mac. And I worked with him for three years. He taught me everything about production and songwriting and performing. Um, and then I went back up to Canada and signed an independent record deal, mm-hmm. um, went on radio tour, and I came to Nashville um, just because I thought I would give it a go. You know, I hadn't been there since my early 20s, and um, I fell in love with it. And I was like, I have to move to Nashville. This is where I'm supposed to be. And so I moved here and I've been here ever since. And who are some of the folks that you got connected with since you've been here who've kind of helped you to further your career? I was so lucky to get involved with some incredible songwriters when I first came here. Like, it was funny because when I first came to Nashville, I went to this round called Revival. And they uh, they have their show at Tin Roof on uh, Demunbrian, and they have songwriters just sing songs. And when I first got to Nashville, the first week I went to this round, and these people were playing all the songs that I grew up singing karaoke to, and they were the songs that they wrote themselves. Wow. So I was like, obviously that is I'm meant to be here, like I have to be here. Um, but the people that put on Revival, uh, Rob Snyder and Channing Wilson, they wrote Luke Combs's She Got the Best of Me. Mm-hmm. Um, so they really waved the flag for me when I first came down to Nashville. And I mean, I'm so blessed because they are definitely a good group of guys to get involved with because I've written a ton of songs with them. And, and you know, people have heard about me because of them. And I became like a hundred percent better writer when I started writing with them because they're just incredible writers themselves. Um, so those were the two main people that I started working with, um, that really introduced me to what real songwriting was like. It was a pretty incredible and amazing experience. Where do you draw the inspiration for your songs? It really depends. Um, I mean, I've, I'm always, I've always been a very empathetic person 
And, you know, if it's not a personal experience, it's an experience that somebody I know has gone through because whenever somebody's going through something, I feel it like if not the same, at least quite a bit the same as they do because I've just always been empathetic ever since I was a young girl. So, I mean, I draw experience from many places, my own, you know, experiences that I've gone through or other people's experiences pretty much everywhere. (laughs) I'm a hot mess all the time. (laughs) But it leads to some great music. Yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, if you're honest with the emotion, I feel like people are going to be able to connect with it. And that's the most important thing when it comes to writing songs. So what's on the horizon for you here? Oh, man. Well, we released the record last year um, in August. So we are going to be like we're writing right now for the next record, which I'm super excited about because it's it's going to sound a little bit different, but still in the same vein. Um, playing a bunch of shows this year coming up um, in Canada and the U.S. Um, just writing for the new record and, and figuring out the next sound for that. So it's it's Definitely been busy so far, and I'm excited for it to get busier throughout the rest of the year. You got a chance to record at the legendary Oceanway Studios? Yes. Oh, my gosh. That place is so cool. It's got such, like, crazy history, uh-huh. um, but it is the most beautiful studio I've ever been. It's got that big room because it was, it was a church back in the day, mm-hmm. and it's just got the coolest energy to it. When I walked in, I was like, man, this is a magical place. And I'm so excited to be recording here. It was really cool. When you think about coming to Nashville your first time and finding yourself on the stage at the General Jackson and at Tootsie's and at uh, the Nashville Palace, and then you uh, go down the road a ways and and end up recording at Ocean Way, I think you're doing something right. Well, I think... It's just, I mean, either I'm doing something right or I'm super stubborn and I'm just not going to give up on my dream. <laughs> One of the two. But it's definitely been, I've I've had some um, full circle moments here in Nashville that have definitely, I mean, I literally can't express enough gratitude for being able to be here and for the team that I have and, and you know, the people that allow me to stay here. So it's it's just been an incredible experience. One of the reasons uh, I was really excited about having you here in this uh, in this historic venue and uh, get, getting to talk to you is that looking at some of the videos and seeing some of the stuff that you had done, I, I could sense the emotion, how emotional you got talking about your craft and uh, about what the music means to you and what it means to other people. Uh, to me, that's the, the mark of a good artist that really feels that. It's not just you know, carbon copying something. This is, this is real. Well, I definitely try to be honest because I think that's what's going to sell the best and Mm -hmm. what people are going to connect with the most. And at the end of the day, that's what it's all about is connecting with people and letting them know that they're not alone. Mm -hmm. And it's actually, I even had like a full circle moment here. So you said that you usually do this at the Ernest Tubb Mm -hmm. record shop, right? And so when I was 20, I came down to Nashville and I wrote a song with, um, Billy Burnett and um, uh, another big writer in town. And it ended up, the song that we wrote ended up getting pitched to a bluegrass band called the Bankesters. Mm. And the Bankesters have the CD 
that has my song in it at the Ernest Tubb shop. So when I first came to Nashville, I was walking through the Ernest Tubb record shop and I was looking, I was like, oh man, there's the Bancasters. And then I turned the CD around and it said the song that I wrote on there. So there's that full circle moment just here that I had today. And I was like, that is the coolest thing ever. So they are literally happening all the time and it's just a blessing to be here. So make sure you go check that out. 417 Broadway in downtown Nashville, Tennessee, the Ernest Tubb record shop. Go get the Bancasters and put a couple of nickels in in Kelsey's pocket here. That would be awesome. Thank be, you. That'd be awesome to support that. And uh, 2019, you also did the Bad Liar video. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was that process like? It was fun. It was just such a fun song. And, you know, it was so cool because CMT got behind it and and they shared the heck out of it and, and really gave me a ton of support last year. And, and same with the other video as well. So, you know, Bad Liar was a lot of fun recording because it was just kind of like it, sh- it showed the the fun part of my personality, whereas most of the songs on the record show like my emotional side of my personality. But I was glad to have a fun video. So it was it was a blast making that video. So what are some of the bucket list things that you still have you want to accomplish? Well, I would love to be uh, playing uh, on the Grand Old Opry stage. Uh-huh. That would be awesome. Um, I mean, I saw, I've got so many goals. I literally wrote them down Um couple days ago uh i want to win a few acms a few grammys i mean i mean reach for the sky right yeah. so all of the good things that i still haven't done are on the bucket list which is a lot of them <laughs> that's awesome that is awesome well i tell you what we are excited to hear you play and uh, once you guys hear her play i, I think you're going to know that uh, some of those uh, goals are awful attainable uh, you know I, i'm excited about uh uh, seeing where this career leads you here because I think you. you're definitely on the right track and uh, we certainly appreciate you taking the time to join us on it. If folks want to know more about you, where, where can they go to to find you? Uh, you can go to my website, social media, and you can just type in Kelsey Kulik and that's K-A-L-S-E-Y-K-U-L-Y-K. And if you just type in Kelsey with an A, I'm literally the only one out there so you can find <laughs> me anywhere on social media. <laughs> Well, that works out well then. Absolutely. That's excellent. Well, Kelsey, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And we're going to go get her mic'd up and uh, let you listen to the music of Kelsey Kulik. Hey, everyone. My name is Kelsey Kulik, and this first song I'm going to play is called Bad Liar. And this one was played on CMT a bunch last year. It was on Canadian Country Radio, and I hope you guys like it. you off my mind These ain't tears It's just black rain Falling from the sky Landing on my face Ain't drinking to forget you I just like the taste of wine Sleep, your voice ain't in my head. 
So this next song is um, one of my favorite songs because it's, it's got a really cool story behind it. So this is uh, the current single that's out right now. It's called Damn You Love. And I wrote this with Liz Rose and Phil Barton and a little bit of backstory. When I was 16 years old, my mom and I were driving from our hometown to the city, which is three and a half hours away, which also has the closest McDonald's. And uh, I had braces at the time and we were going to get my teeth tightened. And um, I remember turning up the radio and hearing Tim McGraw by Taylor Swift for the first time. And I thought, oh my goodness, I need this CD. So after we went and got my teeth tightened, we went to Walmart and we picked up the Taylor Swift CD and we played it all the way back from Saskatoon to Hudson Bay, which was three and a half hours. And I looked at the credits on the CD because I loved every single song. And most of the songs had the name Liz Rose on it. And I remember saying to myself, I don't know how I'm going to write with Liz Rose, but I'm going to write with her one day. And it turns out that after I signed my publishing deal, I told my publishers, they asked me who was on my bucket list for writers. And I said, Liz Rose. And I said, there's no way they're going to be able to get me to write with her because I'm nobody. And I was looking at my calendar about a month later. And three weeks ahead, I saw Liz Rose and Phil Barton. And Phil Barton actually wrote Woman Like You by Lee Bryce. And I'd written with him a couple times before, but it was a really cool one of those full circle moments where um, I put something out into the universe and it came back and I got to write this song. And this song uh, was CMT's Artist Discovery song. So I hope you guys like this one. him smile did he cue the band did you pick that song so i don't want to dance did you get him up from where he sat and make him look at me like that did you know i'd nail from just one kiss he's doing everything i've missed and saying everything he should i'm falling hard
this is one of my favorite songs I've ever written because this was one of the songs that got me my first publishing deal and only publishing deal in Nashville that I currently have. When I first came down to Nashville, I didn't have a publishing deal and I promised myself when I moved down that I would stay in Nashville for a full year and not go back home because if I did, I probably wouldn't have come back to Nashville because I would have been so homesick. Um, but I was here for about six months and I was so homesick and I was sitting at my kitchen table and I was just playing my guitar and I was thinking about home which was in the middle of nowhere, Hudson Bay, Saskatchewan and I was thinking to myself about all the things that I loved about Hudson Bay and what I missed and it brought me back to this memory when I was six years old and my uncle was looking after me for a week and we were staying at my grandparents house and he was the cool uncle so when he got me he picked me up we went to my grandparents house and he said well there's nothing to eat here we're going to go into the grocery store and we're going to get you some ramen noodles and that's what you're going to eat for the week and I was so happy about that because I love ramen noodles and he thought he was spoiling me which he was so we went to the grocery store which is about 25 minute drive into town got the box of ramen noodles and we drove back in grandma's car and when we got to the dirt road he pulled over and he looked at me and he said well Kelsey you're six years old now and I think it's time you learn how to drive a car and I remember looking at him and being like I don't want to do it he's like you're doing it and he grabbed the box of ramen noodles from the back seat and he put it on the driver's seat and I drove all the way back home to my grandparents place and uh, I was thinking about that memory and I was thinking, man, you know, I learned a lot about life on that drive. So I wrote this song called Life Is Like That. Dirt road in a box from the back. He said driving grandma's car was just as smooth as Cadillac. Don't be scared now, take the wheel. You won't forget this good time feeling of your first drive. Being so alive, he was right. Cause I pushed on the gas, but not too hard. Swerved to miss the neighbor's dog. The bumps in the road almost made me crash. Now he 
push on the gas, but not too hard. Watch out for them dogs in the neighbor's yard. Bumps in the road can almost make you crash. And that was the music of Kelsey Kulik. Be sure to check her out at KelseyKulik.com. That's K-A-L-S-E-Y-K-U-L-Y-K.com. And while you're out there on the internet, if you're in the market for farm equipment, please be sure to head on over to FastLine.com. Check out the equipment locator with the price comparison tool featuring the Iron Average powered by Iron Solutions. And if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the FastLine Fast Track podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or iHeartRadio. Also, be sure to follow FastLine Fast Track on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube, and add our Spotify playlist to your library for music from past, current, and upcoming guests of the show. We'll be sure to keep you up to date on the latest information on how COVID-19 is affecting the agriculture industry. Until next week, it's Brent Adams saying y'all come back and bring along a friend. You've been listening to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group. To learn more about Fast Line's customer-focused marketing solutions, visit FastLineMediaGroup.com and check out our brand websites, FastLine.com, BigAg.com, and PinkTractor.com. If you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a line at Brent.Adams at FastLine.com. Yeah.